Welcome to the Bardic Body Podcast. The body tells a story if you know how to listen and to understand its language. As a therapist, I've listened to thousands of body stories and I've come to see common themes that are universally relevant. Unspoken, they remain hidden. Shared, they may heal the listener and the teller. These are our stories and they contain wisdom and point to a truth that rather than being a problem to solve, this body can teach us how to come home to ourselves. The content of this podcast is provided for information purposes only. It does not constitute expert medical advice. It should not be used as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. If you have any concerns about your health, you should consult a healthcare professional. The use of any information on this podcast is solely at your own risk. I'm really excited to share this episode of the Bardic Body podcast with you because recently I sat down and chatted with storyteller Simon Oates. We delve into the subjects of ritual, theatre and festivals and discuss the function of the sacred circle that surrounds these things and enables us to explore realms of being that would otherwise be unavailable to us. I hope you enjoy this podcast. I'm just going to talk at speech level. That's good, and I'll turn the click track up. As I do it. I can and then talk I'll... to the click track. So we some... can make it a hip-hop interview if you want. And to. I can freestyle, like freestyle about the table, the table. and, and the, Do what and the, you're the, able. I'm freestyling. <laughs> Lay down with Mabel. Create a... Okay. All right, well, well how about we just... Um, uh, forget that's on, and um, well, no, let's just let's just roll it, Joe. That's yep. usually the way our conversations happen. So, greetings, listeners. I have uh, the privilege to be sitting opposite Mr. Simon Oates, who is a dear friend of mine and a collaborator of sorts. Uh, a very talented storyteller, actor, musician, and the creator of um, a musical, a solo musical journey called Orpheus in the Underworld, which really showcases uh, the depth of Simon's not just his technical ability, but where he comes from in terms of what motivates him as a storyteller, I think. Mm. And it's quite awe-inspiring uh, what he's achieved in that musical and it, it's just a showcase of what, um, I guess, the depth of where his motivations come from as a, as a storyteller and what the what the tool of storytelling means to him and what he what he's um, passionate of sharing 
in the world. And so I um, welcome you, Simon. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for uh, accepting the invitation to come and talk. We've had some great conversations uh, in our collaborations around the role of, well, well, the way, as a therapist, the way I come at it is, is through uh, process work, which utilises a sort of a theatrical element, very much so. And, um, and, and we sort of, we meet quite nicely on that and, and you coming, you bringing your expertise of that acting world um, and all of the, all of the techniques um, and uh, exposure that you've had to, to the various uh, states that, that those, that these techniques are, are trying to, to enable you to access mm. for, for, I guess, um, um, you know, greater depth in your in your performance and that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah. What um. What what could you add to that in terms of uh, where we meet? Uh, well, I think what what gets me energized in our conversations um, <clears throat> is you bring this beautiful kind of uh, deeply uh, embodied knowledge about where consciousness meets the energy systems of the body and you know the the anthroposophical knowledge you bring to these conversations and um, I love the perspective your your journey you're on around digestion Mm. And coming to the notion of how we how we interact with the world as a as a digestive process is very visceral, and and I suppose my fascination that um, in the world of acting, particularly in that part of my experience and my training, uh, is very much about. Well, say if you take Shakespeare, one of the things that's wonderful about working with Shakespeare is that there's um, a lot of language in it, which is very physicalized language. And it, mm -hmm. it, there's this uh, experience you get, and I assume that the Elizabethans' life was much more visceral, visceral. You know, if you were walking through London at that time, you might have seen people rotting in cages as punishment, and mm -hmm. you would be smelling human excrement and waste everywhere and, mm. um, and so there was this experience that the emotions arose from the organs of the body and um, yeah that the that there's not the sense of separation that I think in modern times in particularly Anglo-Saxon culture has arisen the idea of a separation between mind and body, and mm. heart, emotional mm. self, that these are all, you know, experienced as um, being a, a whole gestalt. And uh, I suppose that's the thing that I came to love about the opportunity of being in a space of theatre and acting is that you get to explore 
uh, areas of human experience in a kind of uh, physical, emotional, and mental mashup. Mm. Um, and you get to explore parts of human nature and the edges of human nature that that if you explore them in the real world they get in trouble yeah basically they screw things up and screw up your relationships and create situations that you have to deal with the consequences of in a way that you know within the magic circle of theater yes these phenomena are contained and they don't escape and create ripples in the world yeah, this this is a this is one of the themes that I wanted to talk with you about is this this notion of of the sacred circle, mm. um, and you've mentioned it uh, in theatre, and I recently read a, an essay uh, th- that mentioned it in the realm of festivals, mm. and and this idea that um, you know the traditional festivals. Um, had a had a kind of a sacred circle put around them in that in that on that day, you you were allowed to turn social norms on their head, and and the idea being that you you got to explore the the roles uh, that that inhabited you, but but that you weren't permitted in your ordinary life to to explore, and. Yes, and in that sense, um, you know, in theatre, you might watch uh, someone else act out that, and you get to live along with that experience and have a. Uh, I guess that's what uh, morals of the story are about: following mm. that journey and seeing how it ends up, and and the the watcher um, having a an insight through that, and then the festival being a more. I think it's great that you say insight, uh-huh. because the. Some of the science I've read around what happens when we're empathising, and particularly when we're empathising with story or watching theatre or film, is that if, if you're acting out the role and I'm engaged in observing you, I am mimicking in, in miniature on my face and body the postures and expressions that you go, and I'm kind of reverse reading through my nervous system, mm-hmm. what the internal experience of that is, and that that's how we empathise. And the theory goes that uh, early on, when we're cavemen, that's <laughs> how these theories. There's are. a sabre-toothed <laughs> tiger is going to yeah. come into this, I'm sure. There is a sabre-toothed coming towards us, and you've never seen one before. And you look at it, and you're looking at its face, and it's snarling, right? Yeah. And you. You make that snarl yeah. and you go, if I were doing that, I'd be about to attack something. Yeah. I'd better run. Yeah. Like, that's the notion. Yeah. You yeah. know, apocryphal or, or not. But um, it's so so that what you are enacting, and, and from my experience, the really powerful actors, you're actually experiencing it. It's running through your psycho-emotional system. It's real to your nervous system when it's really going. Yeah. I am also experiencing that internally. So it is an insight. Mm-hmm. I'm looking in, on some level, I'm looking into me as yeah. I watch you. Right. You'll have to excuse that sound. It's, the wind is blowing outside and there's a baffle on the chimney that, that 
uh, rattles with the wind. So if you're wondering what that sound is. Um, now, what struck me uh, as, a, as a difference between a festival and a, uh, the sacred circle of theatre is that in one case you're a spectator and, and in the other you're, you're, you're taking you're a, participant. you're a participant and you're also in an unscripted mm -hmm. uh, environment. What do you think, uh, does it all end up um, um, creating the same sort of experience or is there, do you think there's a, a distinction that, that, or that, that has significance? Between those, mm, I, I, yeah, I do think there's a distinction. It's interesting. I've been reading um, again about ancient Greece, and you know, it's commonly considered that the birth of theatre is in ancient Greece, and the the ancient Greeks also were no strangers to to festival and to embodied ritual. So, as I understand it, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that the origin of the word festival is the same as the origin of the word feast. Mm -hmm. Um, and in fact, the great turn it on its head festival of the European tradition is Carnival, and Carnival is from Carna is yeah. is from eating meat because yeah. it would happen at the end of Lent when everyone's been fasting and being yeah. very good for thirty days or you know however long Lent went for, and then the celebration is now we can eat meat and now we engage in the kind of blood and body pursuits of being human for this weekend or for this day or mm -hmm. whatever it is and and you know to me that's connected with theater um the theater festival in athens was in tribute to dionysus and you know the connection with dionysus and bacchus the gods of kind of ecstasy and um abandon and uh, f feasting and drinking and sexuality and um, you know I think it's I think we're re we since the 60s we've reclaimed this as a valid part of the human experience but I think in the mainstream culture we're still on that journey of going oh, that's that's sex and feasting and our animal selves these are these are gods these are sacred domains like I you know because the Christian legacy was to separate the mm. which I think is why you had to have carnival is that people are being asked to live their lives in monogamous relationship um, respecting a very hierarchical society because all of those festival and carnival rights emerge from quite hierarchical societies where people have their place mm. and there's not a lot of social mobility mm. Right, and we forget this, is that for the bulk of human history, you're born into a state of being from which, you know, if Dad was an ironmonger, you're an ironmonger, mm. buddy. Mm. If Dad was a farmer, you're a farmer. If you're a peasant, you're a peasant. Yeah. Very few people shifted their estate. And so one of the notions about that is that in a really stratified rigidly coded society you need a release valve mm. and so like the feast of fools mm -hmm. and in the feast of fools when is that like the 11th the, day after christmas yeah the um, 12th holy nights 12th night sorry mm. you 
you elect a lord of misrule and and through some of these festivals you might have you'd have the like the the jester pope or the people's pope so someone for the day would wear the robes of the pope or the archbishop and you can throw shit at him mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know you can pick up handfuls of cow shit which is in plentiful supply in european yeah. ancient cities and yeah. you can express what yeah. you feel your resentments and your you know all the repressed sexuality and all these things which, which are all out. uh which are all failures in a way aren't they because you, you've been held i guess in these uh these rigid societies I guess when you bring uh, religious um, striving uh, or an ideal that you're meant to be living up to, and of course you can't, and so then so then you must fail and then and then repeatedly live in that failure. So I suppose there's a kind of a kind of a recipe happening, isn't there, for for the need uh, to release, which is what I, I guess, which is what are all these things like democracy? It's it's not. Just because we say we live in a democracy, it's it's more of an ideal than an actual practice. Um, Unless it's an actual practice, I, we've we've got further and further away because um, most people don't actively engage in the democratic process, and right. so if the populace is not actively engaged in it, then it was pointed out to me once that the, the where, where's the democracy? Families aren't democracies. Workplaces aren't democracies. Mm. So it was like, oh, okay, it's, it's inside of this idea of democracy, but at a at an interpersonal and interpersonal level, there's usually not a lot of democracy going on. And 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 is there a democracy in our being, or or do we, um, or are we tyrannical? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a great question. Um, yeah, and I think. You know, it's this thing too that democracy is an ideal, isn't it? Mm. Is that uh, like the fact that that our, some of our ancestors even came up with that idea? Because if you, if you look around the world historically, it's, it's not it's like they've seen that happening and went, yeah. "Yeah, we should do more of that." Yeah, the bonobos do it. We should do it. <laughs> <laughs> Someone or some group of people came up with that notion and then went, well, that's worth a shot. Yeah. Let's see if we can make that happen. I mean, similar thing happened with the idea of communism. and You know, in most places that was tried out, that idea was tried out. It went catastrophically wrong. Mm. So our ideas don't often take very well. Mm -hmm. I think we have to acknowledge that. Like, and I, I can see that in ideas I have for how to fix up my own life or my own state of mind or well-being is yes. my intellectual self goes, well, what I should do is, and, you know, maybe it's an exercise regime and I get three weeks down the track and look at the tatters of the thing I wrote on the wall. I'm yeah. going, well, that didn't go so well, did it? Yeah, and there are a lot, uh, a lot more ways that something can go wrong than, than how it can go right. Yeah. yeah. So getting back to uh, that that question of the difference between uh, the festival and the, the theatre, where did we end up with that? I think some of the energies are the same. I think the circle is just larger. So right. as a viewer of the theatre, my sense is that the sacred circle sits, you're sitting on the outside of the circle to an extent, and some theatre will break that form and actors move into the audience, but... And, and I guess the, um, I guess the, 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 
curator of, of the, the play is saying, I, I want to take the people through this experience and I want them to sort of uh, to see the outcomes of this way of being. Mm. Whereas, whereas I guess that, that unscripted aspect as well, um, let's just throw you into the, the season and, and the, the environment. And, and um, you know, I, I imagine some festivals might have just been young men or, or I, I, well, I, I mean, I'm extending festival into ritual there as well. And so, so the context would yeah. guide a lot of it. Um, ritual might be another level of um, mediation in terms of directing the experience. And then festival might just be an all-in. Let's do what let's do what we do in spring when there are no rules, for example. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I mean, the first place my mind goes is to festival is almost like an anti-ritual. But I wonder to what extent the context of the carnival or festival period is like. If you think if it's at the end of Lent, mm. then there's been a very strict religious observance. And an enacted religious observance, I mean, and, and the context is going to come out of that, isn't it? It's it's going to be you know inseparable, really. Just but kind of the flip, the yeah. flip side of it. Because this is the interesting thing, you know. I've played with some of these carnival like things. You've been a participant, mm. <laughs> my playful experiments. Um, but we'll tend to lift them out of context, and maybe that screws with the experience I don't know like I think there's um, well speaking from a, from a participant's point of view I'm, I'm reminded of the the 12th holy night the, the day, Feast, what, of Feast of Fools um, and I suppose that that really worked and, and there, there was definitely magic in the air and and it was the sense of being part of something. It wasn't just someone's um, fancy to, to I'm going to host a party and it's going to be this theme. It was, it had roots and, and they were felt as something a little bit uh, mysterious, uh, magical and powerful because it was like, oh, I think something's working on me. Yeah. Um, and whether that, whether I could say that was the experience through, through some sort of, uh, memory of my own or or whether it was because i i think you know it was probably the 12th it was holy night. yeah so it was it on was. It was on the day so so there's that um there, there was me having uh the experience of christmas like and that's mm. you know uh that's that's something i observe and i participate in willingly um so, so I'm so I'm having a, a a ritualistic experience, a cultural ritualistic experience there, and then you've you've brought in this uh, complement of something that that was there previously, that's since been forgotten, and, and then and then it's emerged again, and 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 you know these things are uh, from 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 our conversation, I, I can see that they're rooted in in a lot of wisdom. Um, you know, you mentioned um, Julius Caesar used to uh, parade through the streets, and, and at the back of his parade of his armies and whatnot, there was a there was a character on a donkey, yeah, uh, dressed up some, as Caesar. You'd put someone in the in the kind of vegetable trash cart with a rotten cabbage on his head as a parody of the Caesar. And again, similarly with the medieval times when they could 
throw shit at the Pope. People could throw shit at the clown Caesar. Yeah, and, and, and these days I, I imagine a politician, if he sees himself being uh, parodied, uh, there was a great point in case, uh, case in point, Jeff Kennett, uh-huh. you know, yeah. um, Victorian Premier, when was that, 20 years ago? Um, you might recall a fella came up and threw a custard pie in his face. Right. And a lot of us supported that at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, he was popular in some quarters, but mm. certainly not in the more left-leaning quarters I was part of. And I'd been part of various protests around the closing of schools and all of the stuff that happened under his rain um well he he charged he had the fellow charged and i remember thinking you missed an opportunity Kenneth. because if he had have been able to lick the cream off his face right. and say hmm, lemon my favorite oh or, you know wouldn't he have been uh... he would have been universally loved yeah for a moment even mm, by those who mm. hated him for yeah. having the humility but the fact that he couldn't see that you're 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 the most powerful person in the state. Of course, people resent you. Mm. That's that's just the way it's going to be. That's a part of status quo. And people and, who are yeah. less powerful, the strongest tendency is to resent those in power, whether they're doing a good job or not. Mm. Just because they, from the perception of lower status, have more choices, more resources, more access. Um, and if you can be the big man who allows the possibility for that, because the fact is the guy didn't shoot him. Yeah, that's right. You know, which is the other expression uh, and, and of resentment. The uh, the cream pie is 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 kind of a, an archetypal parody it's, symbol, isn't it? It is the clown's talk. Mm, yeah, it's yeah. how the clown expresses anger and antisocial behaviour. Yeah. Right. So, in a way, the guy who does the cream pie. Is far more mature choose. Sorry, I mean mature than than Jeffrey in that moment because mm. the guy knows who he is. Mm. He's being the clown expressing mm. resentment. Mm. Kenneth doesn't recognise it. Mm. So, so Julius Caesar seemed to recognise it, and he and he was drawing on the same idea as as uh, these these ancient festivals, where I think you said um, if if there's that much light generated there. So too, that much shadow must be generated. Yeah, I think this is a Jungian idea, and Jung said this very much about the um, that this was an evidence uh, in Germany that prior to the rise of Hitler, you know, German is the kind of intellectual capital of Europe. They have the mm-hmm. best universities. Uh, there's a lot of the great high art is going on in Germany, and and in a way, uh, look, I'm paraphrasing paraphrasing badly but my recollection is that he said something along the lines of that the the emergence of the shadow element um didn't surprise him it was just that it wasn't it was not handled well clearly yes and and a lot of these um but this is the other thing about what he said is that um one of the ways in which shadow material of a culture will emerge is in the mob Mm -hmm. Um, And this ties in with festival is that um, there's a great experiment that was done in this by, uh, what's his name, Um, Darren Brown, the British, he started as a stage hypnotist, had these amazing shows, um, 
trick of the mind, etc. And he mm -hmm. did a set called The Experiments. And one of them is where he takes an audience and he puts them in masks so they're anonymous and they have an, a kind of digital AB voting system mm -hmm. where they can make a choice. But they're all anonymous and they're choosing anonymously. And they set up this notion that uh, it's a TV game show and they've found someone who volunteered once upon a time, but he doesn't know it's going to happen to him now, which is something Darren Brown did a lot of. And what we're going to do is this guy's going to go out for a night. Some of his mates are in on this and we as the audience will choose what happens to him. So the first one is reasonably innocuous. He's in a bar and we get to vote as the audience between whether um, a beautiful woman at the bar sort of gives him a smile and makes him feel good about himself or shall we have the other woman accuse him of pinching her bum and have the boyfriend arc up in his face. Mm -hmm. And what happens is that the mob, because we're a faceless mob yeah. and we have this anonymity, Every single decision is the shadow decision. Get right. him in trouble, get him in trouble. And to the point where they choose to have him fired from his job, um, have someone smash his television, etc. And I won't give away where it goes to because where Darren Brown takes it is absolutely fascinating. And any listeners who are interested can find this episode online. I don't want to give it away. But what he was playing with and experimenting with was this notion of you. If you take away our ego individuality and the mask is the classic old ritual vehicle for doing this mm -hmm. um, and you place us together, then shadow material will emerge in the mob. We give ourselves permission to make choices and behave in ways that we don't when we see ourselves as individuals. Mm. And I think... The recognition of that is in the old folk wisdom as the civilizations are arising. Mm -hmm. um, so, so what what what's coming to mind for me uh, is is that in social media you you have a very similar mechanism at play, right? Where uh, where a faceless audience uh, feeds back to the system what it wants to see happen. Um, and I mean, like a Facebook pile on these classic. Yeah, and I think even even I. I would even suggest to the point of, of ratings uh, of a news program, for example. What what do you want to see? Oh, okay, calamity, uh, disaster, conflict. You know, controversy because because it's exciting or, or whatever, mm. or or just that shadow element and the fact that I'm a faceless observer, and now have the ability to instantly uh, feed back. It's it's raises concerns about <laughs> what we're gonna want to produce as, as a narrative. You know? Because we didn't used to be interactive in this process. Yeah. You know, uh, broadcast media are a small sampling was used for ratings and we either could can a show or not and our interactive possibility really was about whether we bought the products being advertised to us. But, mm. you know, see what you mean? The game has changed. So are we creating our own rituals? Um to, to um, out, out of uh, because because on the other hand you've got you've got um, you know you're probably quite aware of this um, the peril of being in the public eye at the moment and, and saying the wrong thing mm. um, and how uh, you can be destroyed um, and and this seems to be happening simultaneously 
these two, I don't know if I'm drawing, I mean, it's just, it's seeming to me that these, these two processes where you've got this um, faceless uh, voting going on that, that, that kind of directs a narrative and, and at the same time you've got this um, harsh judgment of, mm. of those who, so, um, who say the wrong thing. And, and so take in, the mask off and step forward as an yeah, individual and voice something. That's right. And, yeah. so, and, and in being judgmental of that, we, we then enforce that on ourselves as a society that, mm. that there are certain ways of being that, that are not okay. There are certain opinions or certain points of view that aren't even um, permissible to consider. And, and, and then and to consider that there may be some truth in mm. them whilst there are elements of it that are, I don't know, socially regressive or, you know, um, underdeveloped or... Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I must admit, I, I've basically removed myself from social media because... It has this illusion that it's a platform in which you can communicate. You can communicate and you can be vulnerable, and you know, like that. I remember a period where I started to see this, where people from within various communities would share deep personal stories, and um, part of me admiring this, and part of me going, "Ooh, this feels really dangerous. Mm. It feels really dangerous, particularly any." that was shared that you go is that fully processed you know mm -hmm. people would say i'm i'm processing this i'm going through this and i think is facebook the place to do that because mm. aren't you really looking for like a women's circle or a men's circle or a uh, a group that has clearly set up boundaries and agreements and has a face, right? And has a face because where we're we're, we're, in, we're putting ourselves in front of that faceless crowd that presses that red button mm. <laughs> through through a kind of compulsion, and even um, and and it's very easy uh, in that in those forums for it to go that way, isn't it? Because it, they're little bites of information and. You know, I'm I'm very cautious when I'm texting people. There are certain subjects, or when something reaches a certain level of complexity, where I'll just say, "Okay, texting's over. I, yeah, we we've call got to need a phone call." And then, and then if if it got beyond a phone call, it would need a face-to-face -face meeting. And yeah. and we sort of need. Um, I think I think part of the skills that that we need to uh, develop more is discerning those those moments where, it's like, where we've... It's like etiquette of... Um, the etiquette of a communication medium. So back when it was, you know, you met face-to-face -face or you wrote a letter to someone, the, the formal language and the etiquette of writing a letter was very, very different to the etiquette of spoken language. Y yes, yes dear Simon. Yeah, because there's a, there's a recognition and people would... Like I remember growing up, my I remember my parents if they had to express something quite difficult in a letter or potentially contentious, that they would write a draft of this letter and then they would sense check it with each other. How yeah. do you think this person who I'm intending this for will take this? And mm. do you think have I overemphasized anything? Is have I taken the wrong approach? They would never have fired off a letter 
Mm. <laughs> you know, lick the envelope and take that, you bugger. Yeah. Like, and they'd sleep on the message and they'd reread the draft. And this is one of the problems with the immediacy, particularly of text. Mm, and uh, predictive text. <laughs> I think um, my uh, my wife went to um, went to uh, text someone, and instead of uh, their name, which is a, a double name, it it, uh, it a predictive text dustbin. <laughs> so thanks, dustbin. You know. Oh, lovely. Yeah. So she could have hit <laughs> she could have hit on that one. I'm sure there's been worse than that too. But it's but it's. It's also about the state in which, and this is the problem with Facebook pylons, is that we respond potentially and add our anonymous voice to something or like or dislike or support something in the heat of the emotion of a reaction. Mm. And most of us know that if we can get beyond our reaction to something someone has voiced, we'll, we'll end up having a more nuanced view of it. Mm. There, there's, there's that, and, and there's also the, the, the embodiment ish, or, um, distinction. Um, because, you know, we're talking about festivals and, and process work mm. and theatre, uh, where the uh, in theatre at least the uh, the actors are engaged embodied in an embodied yeah. sense. Um, you've got one degree of separation there as a spectator, uh, but you're still observing uh, physical, and then you you get get another degree of separation when you then watch a movie that that's not responsive. Yeah. Um, uh, so I. I, I wonder if we can um, sort of bring this around to uh, to those embodied practices where, um, you know, it's what what seems to be a bit of a remedy uh, in the clinical setting is is uh, rev oh, I don't know if reversing or f fleshing out that. Uh, those issues, which which are often um, snaring us in our minds, and and I work, I would say, exclusively with 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 getting the body to to undo the the knots that have been formed through opposing uh, forces in in the form of um, ideas. You know, like mm. I, I often use the example of um, I. I hate my job. I want to go travelling, but I need the money. So there's 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 one idea being I hate my job. Uh, the other being I need the money, and, and so there's kind of a fear and freedom sort of um, tug of war going on. Mm. And and this is where I bring in this idea of, of a digestive process because what what life. Um, ends up doing for you is, is bringing you to a resolution. Life seems to do that because, because it, it'll, it'll eventually take one of those choices away from you. Um, like if we, if we look at uh, uh, this job's killing me but I need the money, 
maybe 10, 15 years down the track, I, I, I end up with chronic fatigue or some, some sort of illness that, that I know came from living an unsatisfying life where I wasn't courageous enough to take a risk, for example. Mm. Um, and, and at that moment where I can't get out of bed anymore, my body won't do that. I'll, I'll look at these two choices and I'll say money or health. And, and in that moment, there won't be a choice. Yeah, I'll choose health because the money, yeah. give me a million dollars, it's not going to help me out of this, this suffering that I'm in. Um, and if the magic wand could be waved or, 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 well, no, it's not about that. It's really a pathway forward of action. It's like I've got to focus on my health. I've got to start. It's interesting because what I hear in that is I think on one level what um, theatre do does is it takes those conflicting impulses and puts them into different bodies. So the characters will hold and they will for play it out, impulses. right? Yeah, and, and, and we wrestle it out and we observe it. So, yeah. um, so in the Greek tragedies, for example, that's very often um, some of the huge ones. Like it's I don't know, um, I hate my father. <laughs> is that know, is that like Hamlet or something? And I must obey my father. Uh huh. And we'll we'll put that on stage and we'll actually kill the father. Yeah. And then we'll go, you know, the other character will fight against the killing of the father or whatever it is so that these deep impulses that potential... You know, I, I kind of feel that one of the things that theatre and festival have in common is that um, civilization and culture is tenuous. Yeah. We're, we're, we're apes with just more sophisticated ways of expressing ourselves on one level. And we still have the impulse, you know, it's this thing of stick enough chimpanzees. It's always there, right? Yeah. Yeah, you stick enough chimpanzees in the MCG, blood will drip off the walls. Mm. Like we manage to, even though it can be deeply uncomfortable, we manage to pack a lot of us into an area and our capacity for cooperation is, a, is extraordinary. Mm. And at the same time, like... You only have to look at certain parts of the world currently to see just how god-awfully wrong it can go when mm. it breaks down. And it seems to me that um, theatre, ritual, festival on one level are maybe the technology that says these impulses and forces that could rip this fragile society apart we need to create the sacred circle, the safe space in which we can let them express themselves, play out. And maybe the difference between theatre and festival is festival is a space where we go, okay, the circle is the next three days. Mm. Do the shit you feel like doing. Right? And in three days' time, we're back to, we're back to the system of order. Three days of chaos, people. Go nuts. Uh, you, you know, the, any babies that are conceived will be looked after by the village and yeah. whatever the practice is. So that's a kind of a letting off steam. I think maybe what theatre does is go, okay, these impulses that we all have, um, the resentments and the desires and all of these things. And, and maybe my need as, an, as a, a spectator to see something go horribly wrong 
Yeah, but we will yeah. follow it through to its conclusion. Yeah. And maybe that's what the theatre does, is it says, how, how can we resolve these competing forces? Yeah. Well, let's play out this, and tragedy plays it out to the end, which I guess makes you go, yeah, I might give that one a miss. <sighs> and I don't know, is co comedy is playing it out to a point of re resolution where actually all in, all's well that ends well. Yeah, and it kind of uh, takes a, a gravity off that 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 gives a, a a bit of freshness, doesn't it, to to looking at something? It's like yeah. it's like for a moment we're gonna uh, lift off the the um, consequences of of saying something awful or something that you shouldn't say. We're just gonna lift that, mm. uh, which is a kind of a, a gravity and significance, isn't it? Because on one level, I mean, one of the simplest pieces. The theatre is the stand-up comedian. Mm -hmm. And on one level, I see the stand-up comedian's job is to say the, say the shit we're all thinking, but no yeah. one wants to say out loud. Yeah. And so the laughter that occurs, particularly the most manic laughter in those spaces, <laughs> from my experience, is when you, you say the taboo. And, um, you know, I'm thinking of comedians like um, Russell Brand, uh, Louis C.K., for all the trouble he's been in, has been brilliant in the past at exploring particular parts of the male impulse and the male psyche that, you know, need to be aired. These, you know, the bits of ourselves that we'd rather stick in a box and send somewhere else. These ways of thinking about others or impulses towards action. And in the process of voicing them, and giving them a brief form, we get to go, oh, it's not just me. I mean, it's kind of like the same effect of a 12-step group where people get up and share the stories of all the terrible shit they did in their addiction. Mm. And one of the things that occurs in a room is that catalyzes is, oh, I'm not the only one. Mm. And, and it seems to me that... Uh, and, 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 and as you said, the... Uh, the impact of some of these festivals um, uh, back in the day were, were unplanned pregnancies and things like this. And you said that um, it was part of the culture of the village that they would um, the village would raise these kids that were... Well, look, I'm no expert on this, but I, I have read about that in terms of the old um, English, at least, tradition of May Day. Yeah. The, the Maypole and, and uh, there's a connection to Robin Hood... Robin of the Greenwood, Robin and his merry men were the men on May Day who would hang out in the woods. And, Wearing tights. Yeah, and the young women <laughs> would come out to be deflowered. You know, and any babies born from May Day were considered holy babies that were looked after by the whole community. So, so that's, that's conceivable, uh, pardon the pun. But um, I guess the, the point I'm getting at is that these cultures recognise that there was an impact there was a consequence of having these festivals, but it wasn't as bad as, as the, the consequence of not having them. Of not having them. That's right. So, you know, we could simply hold the question, we have these, they call it an epidemic of anxiety and depression. Mm. Yeah. Is yeah. that one of the consequences of no longer having a true carnival or festival space? And the other question would be, in the modern world with motor vehicles and firearms and 
the technologies that we have or the fact that, you know, back in <laughs> you, you, What you're saying is these uh, bonobos now are armed with some, some serious... Well, uh, maybe the most serious one. Like, you know, I was at a, uh, an outdoor dance festival seven, eight years ago and walking along and seeing, you know, some folk, I would guess, early 20-somethings and they're clearly, you know, on, on some self-administered psychedelic therapy having a mad exploration of a time. But the difference between when I was 20-something and them was one of them was videoing them as uh -huh. they're doing it. Live on. And do they, maybe, is that, yeah. I don't know, have they yeah. posted that? Yeah, yeah. There was no record of most of the madcap nonsense I got up to, fortunately. Yeah. Um, the consequences of those kinds of explorations now with the technologies that are sitting in people's pockets. I don't know. Maybe it's not even safe to go carnival. And maybe we, you know, the, I don't know, with the sexual revolution of the 60s, did we let down the kind of barriers of an ordered society which mean that we, we don't know how to contain those energies anymore. Is my sense. I, I wonder. I wonder if it's a case that um, that we prize so highly this idea of comfort, and and a lot of it, it, it's almost it's almost a crime to make someone uncomfortable um, mm. these days, mm. um, as as if that as if that power exists in me to do to you, and of course. It can, but it's not wholly in my, you know, you have choice as to how you'll take something that I, that I say to you. Um, but it seems as though that, that, that idea of comfort is so highly prized that, that we are structuring um, social norms around that and 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 in, and it's it's similar to just not exercising, or th that we become very, very weak, very um, susceptible. Muscles. Yeah. Yeah. To to, you know, because I I I will take something that someone says to me differently on different days depending on how I feel, and that, you know, a personal practice for me is so important because, uh, life, life is guaranteed to throw up stuff that I don't want to happen. But I have a choice around around how I get to uh, to deal with it. I think it. the very notion of choice too is different. So the you know the at least in the European traditions of carnival and festival, this is in a time when the notion of freedom of will doesn't even exist. Life is preordained. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is a notion that's emerging in Shakespeare's work. There's, a, there's many monologues and things, Hamlet in particular, where he's playing with, well, do I have to follow a kind of preordained destiny or can I make a choice here? That's something that in the consciousness they're grappling with at the time, this notion of freedom of will, which is being explored in art and then will emerge in, you know, from my understanding in the, the period of the Enlightenment or the so-called Enlightenment, man is born free or that, that you're, you have a birthright to freedom of will. Mm. So festival is not happening in that environment. Mm -hmm. Festival is happening in the environment that your future is written in the stars, 
that you are born into your lot and you accept it and you deal with it. And so it's a very different thing to introduce a three-day festival where you get to do whatever the hell you want. For our culture, that's every weekend. You know, mm. that's the deal we make now is everybody's working for the weekend. You know, you work nine to five, or at least this is the kind of ideal that was was born in the 80s or, or around that time. Was as long as you do your job and you then the weekend, all bets are off, buddy. You go out and do do whatever you like. Like there's far more of this notion, or, or even the notion that I should be able to choose my job. I, I remember, I, I remember this this sort of period of my life where I realised that the most conservative thing I could do was to go out on Friday night and get pissed, because that kind of fit hand in glove with this yeah. office job or whatever, where I was basically in a in a cage and then and then on friday night they opened the doors up just just for a night <laughs> you know and you slept it off on the saturday or whatever well that's the carnival spirit right there isn't it as long as long as you stick yeah, right. as long as you stick to the job monday to friday murray will let you out friday yeah, night yeah, yeah. we'll even let you knock off early mate <laughs> you can go out with the boys and tie yeah. one on yeah um Coming to that, uh, coming back to that idea of choice, uh, I, I kind of play around with that idea because it's it's a little bit like. It's a little bit at like at certain stages of the story, you need to, you need to play by the rules of the game to to then advance to the next stage, and I. I sort of think that, that at a certain stage, it's good to think you have choice. But, and this, this relates back to that digestive process because it's like, yeah, I have a choice about whether I work this job or, uh, and get the paycheck or travel Europe and, and, and wing it, you know, wing in a prayer yeah. sort of thing. Um, but the interesting thing about the uh, digestive context that I, that I approach the therapeutic uh, process with is that um, you know, in that example where we where we go fast forward thirty years and this person can't get out of bed, they've got a chronic uh, sickness. Where and then and then that choice occurs as really not a choice anymore. Um, you know, I, I call this um, a will force, which 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 is distinct from. Um, you know, in the in the model I work with, we've got the nerve sense system. And the metabolic system, and in the nerve sense system, you've got a distinction between choices. And this is the realm where we, you know, because oh, do I take the, you know, the money or the, you know, in the game shows, like you mm. could you could double your money or you could walk away with it, and you're like, oh, which one? And they're all existing in the realm of ideas, yeah, because you have neither at that moment. Um, but but the, the tensions in your body pull at each other and, and create this experience that that creates a certain um, uh, significance. And then, and then when you bring it down through the digestive process to a resolution, you, you, you end up with a singular um, uh, impulse. And, and you could say, well, you're not free now because you don't have a choice. Or you could say you are free from choice now. Hmm. Because choice, there's torment in choice. And, and there's... You know, so much of our suffering comes from having a choice. Yeah. So, 
So if I could throw in, yeah, one idea for, for today, it would be um, it'd be that idea that, um, you know, free, freedom from choice and not having a choice, it can sound like a horrible thing, but we're not, we're not, that's not, I'm not saying that from the point of view that anyone's imposing that. I'm, I'm saying it from the point of view that, that something emerges out, out of, out of the, the core of the being um, as a kind of a wellspring. And, and uh, it's like a, it's like an orange tree having no choice but to produce oranges. There's there's a certain agency in that, you know. There's hey, orange. Everyone seems to like oranges. They they come to me for nothing. They they're in endless supply. Well, maybe I can work with that idea and we can mm. come to a, an agreement. You know, I, I, there's an idea that I read uh, from Joseph Campbell um, that really intrigues me. <laughs> He says that uh, fundamentally people who've grown up in the Western system have a lot of difficulty actually enacting and embodying Eastern teachings, even though we're really attracted to them. And he says that the main difficulty is that the primary virtue of the Western education system is to question. Whereas in the Eastern guru system, Shut the hell up and do what you're told. The primary virtue of the student is obedience mm -hmm. because you don't know anything worth knowing yet. That's why you came to the guru. And the guru will tell you what to do. And if you follow the pathway diligently for 20 years or whatever it is, well, the outcome is, is sitting there. You'll find your enlightenment or you'll become a compassionate being. And, and so you put a Westerner into that way of being and we've been taught to push against it. To go, mm -hmm. well, hang on. <laughs> sitting cross-legged here, really. You know, is this the smartest way to approach this? Mm. Um, because we, we, like I, as a Westerner, I'm not sure that I can divorce myself in my identity from the notion of me as a choosing, as someone with agency who makes choices for myself. Despite the fact that my lived history has told me in no uncertain terms that many of the choices I make for myself are appalling <laughs> and just get me into all kinds of trouble. Like I'm not necessarily the best person to make choices for me. Mm. And at times, some of the best things that have happened to me is because, you know, whether it's the hand of God or I often think of it the hairy hand of fate. It's this experience of being picked up by the back of the collar and this kind of, right over here, boy, now yeah. sit down and do this. And I go, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, those things can work out sometimes far better than when I go, yeah. do you know what I think is best for me? Yeah, yeah. It's almost right. like, you know, the angels well, are sitting happy. there going, he's doing the, this is what's best for me thing again. Yeah. Get ready. We're headed for a cliff. Yeah. Uh, this, this, um, um, you know, one of the one of the most valuable things I got out of the anthroposophical model is is this idea that um, in this nerve sense system and metabolic system polarity. So these these are like two different characters living inside of us. Uh, one, the metabolic system uh, loves everything, mm. and it's a bit like you know when we have dinner, we we throw in the we throw in the the steak, we throw in the chips, we throw in the ice cream. It all goes in like you don't eat it like that, but but when it hits the metabolism, it's all in there. 
Mm, and the yummy. metabolism is sort of, yeah, of course, there's these models that say don't eat protein and carbs or whatever. But at the end of the day, it's all in there and the metabolism says, yeah, all right, I'll, I'll deal with that. And I won't differentiate. I won't be that picky. I'll, 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 I'll process it all. Um, and, the, and, you know, in the anthroposophical model, um, Rudolf Steiner says that the, uh, the nerve sense uh, aspect, which he calls the astral, um, uh, in its pure form, hates everything. And if you, if you think of um, how, if you've ever had insomnia or, or, or missed uh, a series of nights sleep, um, what you get is a lessening of the metabolic uh, strength, capacity, and, and, a, and, a, and a relative elevation of the nerve sense activity where, where every noise, the way people are talking, the light that's coming through the window, it all pisses yeah. you off. And you're like, turn it down. Can you just shut up? Yeah. And, and, and they call that sort of person a nervous wreck. And that's, that's literally where the nervous system's starting to consume the body, right? You, you've got a picture of them, right? Oh, they're not I'm healthy looking this. specimens. They're, 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 something's eating them up. This is, this is me on about day five of lockdown. <laughs> yeah. When I get to a point, uh, uh, somewhere around after dinner or just before, that it's like, <laughs> the children away from me. And literally what I've been doing is going, I need 15 minutes in a dark room. Right. With something sense around deprivation, my ears. I right? do, I need some sense mm. deprivation. Because I can feel that kicking in of... This, the very same song that three hours ago from my two-year-old was delightful and angelic and gorgeous yeah. has become this cheese grater on my eardrum yeah, yeah. because I've just hit a point where there's an overwhelm of stimulus. And it, I mean, yeah, is that and, the same thing? Yeah, and that, that would be something like um, eating... eating um eating polenta for, for, you know, 30 days straight or something or like that. Or even chocolate mousse. Yeah, anything, <laughs> anything, and only that. So so this this um, nerve sense uh, part of us that, that hates everything, if you, if you kind of think that at the end of it, when one of these one of these opposing forces, if you think at the end of it that, that we'll be satisfied, think again, because, because the nerve sense system doesn't like anything and it can't digest anything anything and so so basically to to choose one or the other is to say all right well um what do they call it what what life serves up to you right serves it up on a plate mm. that you're meant to then consume and and digest um but but the nerve sense system can't do it so when we when we base decisions that that are an attempt to greater happiness nourishment and fulfillment um in that realm of the nerve, nerve sense system, it's it's never enough, and it's always the next thing because because we are we it's like we're sticking cake up an asshole. It can't. Mm. It's never gonna taste that good. <laughs> um, I've never tried. I'm curious. <laughs> I promise you. <laughs> but um, yeah. So so I'm I really um, I really feel. Uh, passionate about because it seems to me like oh my god like when i it's kind of dawned on me over time that oh my god i'm i'm trying to feed something that ha, ha, doesn't have a capacity to be nourished and i have to learn how to bring that um that process um 
out of out of that realm of um, choice and and into the realm of absorption where where actually I you know you can have your cake or eat it it's mm. it's like well eat the cake and then and then and then have a have a uh, have a bowl of cornflakes you know um, have keep moving keep processing um, you know what keeps coming to me is uh, is that um, you know in a lot of indigenous traditions and I'm thinking particularly of ones I've heard from various Native American traditions the notion of the vision quest so you take a young man and you to, to get him to a point where he'll be useful to the tribe and the culture, you send him off. And whether it's using peyote or whether it's fasting or just walking in the desert for long enough, you've got to send him away till he receives a vision. He doesn't come up with or create a vision. He receives a vision of here's what you need to do. Um, and, and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff I've, been hearing people talk about and read about about you know the the meaning crisis mm -hmm. that that is going on in the modern age for western people in particular this thing of a, a lack of purpose or a lack of meaning in life and people looking for meaning and but you can you even find that if you are coming from a perspective which is my will I mm -hmm. want to do what I want to do, you know. And one of the things that I've had to learn in the process of recovery is my will doesn't work very well a lot of the time. I need to surrender to a higher will or at least align my will in service of it, which is a bloody struggle and I'm not particularly good at it. But I do recognise that when I can get myself into that mode, things work a lot better. And I actually mm. enjoy the process more, frankly. Um, and that's not to say that I'm being uncreative or it's a relationship that's, I'm just a slave going, now go on, I can do that and do this. Um, but in fact, if, you know, I think this is the people being in the flow. Yeah. Being in the flow is not necessarily about making a set of choices. It's, it feels more like surfing. The mm. wave has the primary mm. impulse. The wave mm -hmm. is telling you the possible direction. And you can do your little tricks if you're good at surfing a wave, right? You can do those nifty things they do where they kind of go back over it and back down the mm -hmm. wave. But you can't go back out to sea. And you can't change the wave. No, there's a limit of choices and you are going to sweep from one side of the wave to the other depending mm. on the way it breaks. And you're breaks. going to move in that general direction. Yeah. yeah, and increasingly I think that I look at, say, a metaphor like that and think that's a better or more useful way for me to think about the application of my own will is first recognize what, where the wave's headed. Yeah. Um, learn to catch the wave. And then you get to do your little tricks on the way when you get good at surfing. But, yes. But, you know, if, if you think that, eh, screw it, I'm going to try surfing out off, off the beach, offshore. Or in <laughs> between sets of waves. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of us are doing that. Mm. And I, I certainly know I spend my time doing that. And at the end of a day of doing that, nothing much productive has happened mm. anyway. 
and I'm frustrated and tired and moderately resentful and, and that's and, not a good day. Yeah, and that, and that brings that uh, brings us full circle in a way to that that idea of the festival, which was uh, a rhythmic event, you yeah. know, uh, tied with the seasons generally, yeah. um, and and in a way a, a choiceless um, and tied, observation. And not just the seasons, but tied and. Um, you know, this is intrinsic too, tied to a liturgical calendar. Yes. Um, yeah, the idea I'm getting at though was that the, ryth the rhythmicity of it um, in that it comes around again and you kind of, you know, there's, there's, something, um, there's something restful and rejuvenative about dancing because you, um, you know, rhythm's comforting because it's predictable mm. and... And, and 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 you can dance for a lot longer generally than you can do aerobics or, or you know something that's or lift weights right Be, because you've got this you're working with this rhythm and it gives you energy and especially when at a concert when you know thousands of people are all jumping people, up and down people dance for hours very yeah. few people jog for hours that's right that's a marathon runner and look at them they look you know, the classic marathon runner is all sinew. <laughs> it looks like a self-flagellator yeah. to my eye. Um, no offence to any marathon no, runners out there. No, wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I think, um, you know, this, this idea of um, power and cooperating with, with natural forces and natural wave forms, mm. uh, there's something to be said about it and there's, there is a... A type of, uh, of, of I, I was looking for a word that wasn't subservience, but observance of and abeyance too. You know, mm. um, uh, for for one's own benefit at the end of the day. You know, I think there's also a connection with what you were talking about um, with keeping other people comfortable, and that seems to happen a lot in the same spaces. Uh, maintaining a politically correct voice or, um, you know, that you can't express certain opinions and, and, and there are understandable reasons why certain content at the moment people are asking each other to be incredibly careful about what they articulate. There's good historical reasons for us to maybe go through a period of being very pristine about our choice of words, etc., um, do we need? Do we need? Do we need? I don't know. Um, how long can we sustain that? Do we need something to break it up? You know, like a, uh, you know, I, I kind of find myself sometimes saying, I, I just need to see a good comedian who's taking the piss out of this uh, to give me a bit of levity and, and perspective or something like that. You know, well, this is the interesting thing, and possibly the bit that I go, this sounds a bit dangerous. Is you know. Particularly in the US, Seinfeld won't perform on college campuses anymore. Yeah. Because of this stuff. Yeah. And a lot of comedians are going, can't do college campuses anymore. Mm. Um, because when the comedian can't speak the taboos, that's, that's, you're taking the carnival, you're taking the festival out of the cultural space. Mm, out of the light. Yeah, and it means that the unprocessed animal shadow self has been told, stay in the bloody cellar. 
Mm, and we know that, what eh? happens yeah. if you chain up a powerful entity in a cellar. Sooner or later it breaks out and mm. it's angry yeah. and it will do immense damage. I mean, that's, that's Jung's theory about what happened during the Holocaust, World War mm. II, mm. is that the shadow animal impulses of the German people who were living a very high culture in many ways had been chained up in a cellar and it broke out through the mob and look at the devastation it wreaked and it's interesting that some of this stuff is happening in the name of being compassionate and compassionate and keeping people safe and i think mm. But, it, it, but it, it's happening, it, it's so naive. The approach is so naive. Well, it, 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 to me, it, it's sort of the same as saying uh, in those initiate. I, I often think about the initiation processes of some uh, indigenous cultures, and I don't claim to be an expert on, on the practices, but the basic gist that I get is, is that they're, um, if, I, if I put myself in that situation, um, there's no, there's no welfare system. There's no government. There's no safety net that's gonna pull the pull the tribe out of a out of a famine or a catastrophe uh, of a natural order. Um, and so we're it, you and me and the tribe. And and so I can't, I can't. The tribe can't afford for that um, that kind of self-centered childishness to. To prevail through adulthood, because yeah. because that is now the the net. Narcissism destroys the tribe. Yeah, and 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 I I think that we indulge in the idea that we have these other safety nets, um, and that we can afford to say, oh look, it's going to be uncomfortable. How about we just skip that part where you learn to be an adult, and 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 to and to experience yourself as the net. That's gonna um, either catch uh, things as they fall as they uh, go to fall through the net, mm. you know. And, and, and I, you know, that seems to be the way of it. That um, you know, it's like call the police or call the something system when we see something that's falling through the net. But I don't know how many of us carry that feeling that we are we are the net. I, I don't claim to be uh, especially strong in that. In that sense, but um, yeah, I I I just feel that if we don't um, uh, take this comfort value off the pedestal and and put in place of it something that looks like uh, elevating each other through through healthy, um, could call it challenge or or just oh, the or the or the, um. The way I heard it explained, the best in me um, looking for the best in you, something like that. Yeah. Um, it's a. Hmm. So you know that's my really recipe for the, for the for the <laughs> for for a better world. And there you go. Just take three of those daily. <laughs> <laughs> you should be feeling better. Good. Well, we've wrapped that up. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. I mean, I suppose, how does this relate to your initial question about the circle? And So I'm thinking, like, the circle is an archetype of, of community. 
functions in a number of ways. And I, I suppose in the, the way it functions in theatre and ritual and festival um, is similar to, like when I had a strong men's circle and the work that we were doing there was, okay, this is a, this is a safe space to do deeply challenging work. Mm -hmm. This is not a safe space to avoid anything that feels uncomfortable. In fact, the whole point of it being a safe space was we were going to chuck in the middle unprocessed crap that was screwing with our lives and our relationships. Mm -hmm. The kind of stuff that was left over because we weren't very well initiated as young men. Mm. So we all all the men in this particular circle came in with a strong consciousness that we were kind of in the boy men zone. Mm -hmm. There was still a lot of immature shit that we were playing out in our lives. And God knows there still is in my life. Right? But the idea of the safety of the circle and the agreements we made, confidentiality, um, leaning into each other, hearing each other out to the end of what we were attempting to say, challenging each other at the right time and, and learning about where those lines were, was so that the ugly, unprocessed, crappy stuff could be put in the circle and we could go, right, let's do something with this. Let's learn about this and find out what it is and maybe where it came from and... and um, and maybe be challenged by each other to go, okay, well, good, but now you've got to let go of that, man, and what are you going to do about it? Or how can you nurture something in yourself which is going to counteract that? Or That was the point of the safe space. Mm -hmm. It was actually to get into some deeply uncomfortable and often shameful experience mm -hmm. and be held by um, brothers, because that was the term we used, and I think it's a good one, Held in both ways. Held in when you hit your breaking point, we will just simply hold you, and we'll hold you mm. lovingly, mm. and go, "Well, you've done, you've done your best, and I see you, man, and and know that that you are valued and loved." And the other side of the holding is, I know you are capable of so much more than that, mm. and you're wimping out on that one. Mm. And are you really going to take that thing that's screwing up your life or interfering with? being loving towards your family and go, man, good enough for today and, and crawl back home? Mm. And, I am don't I, think and so. And am I, am I going to really stand there and watch you do that yeah, as I'm not a, conscientiously as a friend? And, yeah, I'm not going to enable you to continue yeah. with that behaviour. I'm going to do yeah. what I can to help you come to terms with it. Um, and I, look, it, it, as I'm speaking about this, I'm going, yeah. And my experience of when theatre really works because most of the time in Australia at least in this age it doesn't it doesn't work at all because I'm sure you know people are still listening to us after all this raving there there are people thinking oh, theatre does absolutely nothing for me and I completely understand it as someone who um, trained for four years um, in a in a, a school to learn about acting and pursued it for a long time and has come back to it and let it go and has been passionate about it as an art form, most of what I've seen has left me tearing my hair out or cold with some notable exceptions which were sublime where I went, that's it, that's what it does, where it felt like something transformative occurred within that sacred circle. 
and it had a healing influence on the people who were witness to it mm. and participants in it. And that comes from putting real material in the centre of that circle, which is dangerous and volatile and incredibly important for the culture to deal with. But my question would be, particularly in Australia, maybe that's not where we do that work if we are doing that work. Uh, it seems to me that a really important uh, part of that is is where the observer comes at it from. Like, are they, you know, and I can see that culturally that that would inform be informed by the culture. Like, oh, yes, the, the theory is where we come to find some redemption or healing or uh, or process some something and, and to have insight um, as opposed to, oh, I just want to uh, veg out and watch some something that that distracts me for a couple of hours. Night out, Beryl. Yeah. Um, so 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 I guess I guess to come back to that question about the difference between uh, festival and theatre, I guess that comes a lot down to the to the spectator and how deeply they um, care to um, live into or or you know to to have that experience. Um, something Vicky and I do and. Yeah. Um, before we watch a movie, we find ourselves watching a lot of kids' movies because Gracie wants to, of course, watch with us. And um, and so we end up watching a lot of movies that we wouldn't really choose um, if she wasn't there. Yeah. And, and so we have to work hard at saying, well, if I'm going to sit here, um, of course I have the option of opting out, but but we don't watch movies that much. So we, and, and, and the feeling is Gracie would be disappointed if we pulled out that we wouldn't have that shared experience so we, so we say all right we want to have a shared experience we'll watch this movie and we'll we'll have a clear and create process where we we just clear stuff like well I don't have much expectation about this this film I, I I'm fearful that it's just going to be a waste of my time and I'll feel annoyed at the end of it and we'll all have this sort of sh um, you know um, shedding and then and then we'll say well well how are we going to come at it uh, what sort of uh, attitude am I going to bring to it? And it might be something like, well, okay, I, I, it, it looks visually quite uh, rich. I'm, I'm going to look for inspiration um, for, for, um, for my visual art purposes. And something like that. Or someone might say, oh, well, I'm going to look for the, um, the, the positive message. I'm going to look for inspiration. Something like that. And so we'll watch it. And, and the... The effect that that has on the overall experience is is amazing, mm. and and it is the difference between it being a waste of time when we didn't just identify that and let the shadow play out of oh god look at that oh my god I can't believe we're doing that and uh, as opposed to okay we have, we've agreed to put that aside I'm just going to be looking for the gold in this yeah. um, and so yeah I and and. I think I'll, I'll ask for your final words on this, but but I think this is a good place to wrap it up in just in just what what we how we can bring these opportunities into into these mundane experiences such that we create a sacred circle for ourselves. Um, in the in the absence of a a cultural form that doesn't in for in us. the absence, but maybe in the in the uh, seedling version of of of, of uh, uh, gaining um, um, not dexterity, but you know, gaining literacy around um, 
around the ability to, to recognize what that is and the value of it. And then we might not be so quick to um, demolish these sacred circles uh, when they show up, you know, mm. like in that, like you're saying in the, the campuses um, with comedy. Yeah, it's making me think of a great article I read by a modern Jungian about film yoga or movie yoga. Um, the notion of a, approaching the watching of a film as if it is a filled with dream symbolism, which it is, because mm. these things have to come from somewhere, right? Yeah. Um, and to actively look for the symbols and the metaphors. Um, and I think that's something that's become an intrinsic part of how I approach films. So I'm thinking of kids' movie, and Pixar are one of my favourite movie makers. I don't see Pixar as, well, they're children's movies. I think they're some of the best storytellers active in the modern studio system, mm. hands down. They tell astonishing stories. So one of the ones that I got into a conversation not that long ago about was The Incredibles. Mm -hmm. Have you seen The Incredibles? Yeah, yeah, I love it. Okay, so it was only on about the third watching of this, you know, because I have kids who there's years apart in my three kids. We're doing rounds. We get to them, oh, well, now, yeah. now our youngest is old enough to watch this one. We haven't yeah. done that in seven years or whatever. It was probably the third watching that I looked at and went, oh, the metaphor. Mr. Incredible is the father, and the father is huge and strong and has to carry all the burdens, yeah. right? Mrs. Incredible is Elastigirl. She has to be incredibly flexible because she has to reach in all directions and manage everything at once. It's the classic, you know, stereotypical mm, mother. Mm. Um, Dash, the young boy, is all kind of speed and potential and moving from this to that and... You you can't see him. He's all around you. The girl who's the teenager... You can't keep up with him. You can't sure. keep up with him. Yeah. The girl who's the teenager has two abilities, and one is she can put a protective bubble around herself. Uh -huh. Well, that's what teenagers yeah. do, right? It's the fuck-off bubble. Yeah. Yeah. And the other is she can go invisible. Uh -huh. She yeah, can shrink, too, withdraw yeah. and shrink inside yeah. herself. And, um, and then when the baby's powers emerge... It's shifting all the time because a baby has just come in. They are absolutely pure potential. Yeah. Now, I can watch The Incredibles and I can miss that mm. and still enjoy it and still get value in other areas. And look, my assumption of the Pixar filmmakers is they consciously know what they're doing with those symbolic structures that mm. they're playing with. But maybe they don't, you know. Well, maybe they're conscious. It's a funny idea. But, you know, if you think about that, it's right. Well, let's take those sets of perspectives and approaches to the world and say that's what's playing on on some level in the family. So maybe mum's Mr. Incredible in your family mm. and dad actually plays the role of Elastic in all, mm. or maybe they share those roles. But to some extent, those qualities are being held by nodes within the family system. Yeah. And now let's put them under the extreme pressure of a global level bad guy. Yeah. And see what happens. See what happens when the family starts to shatter or implode or people are pushed to their limit. And, mm. and that's the purpose of drama. And so the, the film or movie yoga approach is to go, if the storytellers are doing a reasonable job 
And most of the time they are because they had to be interested in the project for three bloody years mm. to get it to fruition. You know, from the first script idea through, maybe it's five years. Mm. The system um, is very time consuming. Yeah. And thousands of minds have interacted on this piece. Yeah. Um, there's a very good chance some wisdom crept through mm. from the human beings involved. Even if they nicked a lot of the tropes and ideas, they probably nicked them from folk tales and myths and things that still have energy. Yeah. And they might screw up some stuff around how they tell the story. There's particular films I can think of that I go, oh, that was a really awful choice. And I'm not sure I would show that particular narrative trope to a child yeah. again. Yeah. Um, but for an adult, at least, you know, there, I think there can be every bit as fruitful as keeping a good dream diary. There, there's, there's some, I'm, I'm thinking um, nutri nutritionally um, and, and absorption, you know, and I'm, I'm hearing that you, you've gone to a level of uh, deep absorption there, you know, in, in terms of um, the qualities that you're extracting out of it. Um, and and there, there seems to me a, um, a safety in that as well, in the sense that when you, when you start to see the strings that are being pulled in the characters, you can, you can kind of go, oh yeah, I like the values that, mm. that they're trying to pull my strings towards, you know, um, whereas, you know, there can be, um, you know, some of those choices that they'll make to, uh, to alter a fairy tale storyline, for example. And, you know, if you've studied fairy tales and you know that that's very specifically pointing to something and in eliminating that factor, you've just, you've just pulled the plug on the whole mm. value of it, you know. So, so, so watching it from that perspective, sometimes you see these little choices that they make and go, oh, no, sorry, you just lost me there because you, you weren't, you weren't, you didn't know what you were holding there and you've mm. just trashed it. Um, so, this, so there's a kind of um, uh, a safety there and, and one that, that can also be uh, used to, um, to help your choices and what you're exposing your family to and, and those that you're responsible for. Um, so. I think this is the thing about it too, and, and I, I think this is helpful, is that part of the reason that we don't do Sacred Circle very well, particularly in mainstream modern culture, is... We look at films as entertainment. We look at theatre as entertainment. The ancient Greeks didn't see theatre as entertainment. This was a this was a ritual with the gods present. Mm -hmm. this more, was, more like going to church or something like that. Absolutely. Yeah. This was a religious pastime that held the fabric of society together. And in a way, that probably Hollywood is doing a lot of that. It's doing a lot of the primary storytelling. Netflix is now, for God's sakes, people spend hours, hours upon hours of their days, weeks, lives in these spaces. It's one of the things that really disturbed me about Game of Thrones is that at its core, there's no moral fabric to it. And the characters who display moral fibre, most of them end up betrayed and dead. 
and there's very little consequence to the antagonists. I was hoping it would go somewhere, but I believe the uh, I believe the writers changed, or or at least the the main writer like dropped the project about I don't know a five eighths through or something, and then and then some other people were given the job of just wrapping up this thing, and I I assume he was heading somewhere with it, and I I sort of trusted that he was, but I don't know whether the uh, the process in that in that it was kind of it got put into manufacture mode, you know. Okay, time for the next thing, the next thing, and he couldn't keep up. By the, is what I is what I think. Well, see, so it was kind of uh, a bit tragic in 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 how it was just um, dealt with and processed to to reach some sort of resolution that didn't kind of fit. Um, and the so thing I would is, have been if this is just entertainment, if it's just a story, in the sense that modern culture looks at stories as just a thing to um, give us a bit of distraction, mm. a bit of escapism, well, fine. But that's not what stories are. And ancient cultures knew stories were sacred for good reason. And all cultures have storytelling at the centre of them, whether it's an acted embodied storytelling or just the storytelling of the mythos around the fire. But what we're learning in psychology and neuroscience now is that what story is, is actually the deep structure of how we configure our perception and our behaviour. Mm. So a, a protagonist, a, a, a central character who's trying to reach a goal, overcoming obstacles on the way to that goal, has to struggle to do that, um, gets into conflicts, problems, resolutions, has, a, has an important motive for that goal. That's at the centre of The Incredibles. It's at the centre of any decent play. Um, but it's also the at the centre of our identity and how we shape our behaviour. That's where I go, well, if we spend three hours a day where our storytelling is no longer around the fire, with a shaman who's done his homework saying, here's the revelatory myth yes. that has emerged from a lifetime of meditation or that I picked up from the other storytellers and I am diligently communicating uh, the deep passed on wisdom of the tribe. With the motivation of the, the, the care and fostering of, of good values within the community that, I, that I'm part of and, and that's, mm. and keeping that us matters to me, right? Keeping us connected to nature and the gods and to each other. What sustains us. And illustrating what happens when we don't obey the taboo system and all of these things. Mm. Uh, As opposed to um, the storytelling, uh, um, you know, uh, priests or whatever that that uh, or shamans that, who who don't necessarily have our best interests at, at heart. So we're we're handing over an awful big responsibility there, aren't we? We've we've handed it over, mm. well and truly. Well, we we have, and uh, there's choices we can make. Uh, in our own uh, circles, family, community, whatnot, to to I guess pull consciously in. pull that back in mm. and, and find ways to engage. I think music's still available to us. Mm. Um, the the you know your your show um, Orpheus in the Underworld shows that that it is entirely possible and very appealing to watch a a single person uh, um, engage. Uh, and keep uh, uh, an audience, uh, you know, enthralled for 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 a good amount of time, 
with the story of substance. So, so you, you've managed to show that that still can compete with with uh, with all of the, you know, well, the bells and whistles. It's interesting that you say that because it, it's reminding me that, um, God, fifteen years ago, I think it was, or about then, when I made a conscious decision to have a real crack at being this storyteller, whatever the hell that is, to go out into schools and out into gatherings of adults and tell stories orally with no script and no backdrop and no props or anything, but just the way that we've done it for millennia. Uh, one of the things was I was going, well, can I, can I take back a bit from Hollywood? And, and, you know, this is the interesting thing is I had heard for years, MTV has ruined our attention span. And I'd go into schools, I, I, over a couple of years, I toured around a show um, for a project of, it was a telling of an old Bible story, mm -hmm. Joseph and his brothers. Mm -hmm. And I pulled it together from the Bible and from the Quran um, telling, which are different, and with a healthy dose of Thomas Mann's work, Joseph and his brothers, which is an incredible three-volume work on, it's a philosophical work on the nature of forgiveness, amongst other things. It's beautiful. Um, and when I would take this to schools, they, you know, they'd say, and this was primary schools and high schools, particularly the primary schools, they'd say, Craig, we've got the kids here and now. How long is the performance? And I'd say, it's an hour. <laughs> the teachers would go, oh, oh dear. No, our, our kids, they can't stay still for that long. No. Their, their attention span's been ruined by television. And I'd say, okay, well, we'll see. We'll see how we go. And my experience was, I was passionate about this story and I knew it had real gifts for the kids. And I had done a lot of work to make it a, a really creative telling. I would go into characters and there were some songs and, and um, I'd done the work. Yeah. But they would be, they would be enthralled. And yeah. I knew when to let them off the hook a little bit energetically and shift around. But I'd never, only once did I ever have to suggest to a child that if he didn't stop hitting the kid next to him, I might have to have him removed from the room. And he fell into line and listened for the rest of the story. But this is hundreds upon hundreds of children mm. and adults mm. who I've had in that situation. And that it's because, look, it's, a, it's part of an inheritance of extraordinary stories that are hidden in this book that most people revile, the Bible. There's amazing stories, and the Joseph story is, is a particularly special one. He's an incredible figure. He's a precursor to Christ in the sense of um, he's not a warrior. He's not, you know, a lot of the old Bible, they're warrior kings and mm -hmm. this kind of thing. And he practices, he's a visionary, and he's someone who deeply learns to forgive the men, forgive them, Father, they know not what they have done. What mm -hmm. an incredible statement, mm -hmm. right? Very few of us ever reach the capability to be able to truly, from the heart, do that. Mm -hmm. That's what the Joseph story is about. Um, so it's morally deeply important. And it's, it's a deeply important lesson for young people to learn that forgiveness is even possible. And that it's not a way of holding something over someone else or using it to feel good. That it's actually forgiveness is a process of understanding your culpability in the dynamics that led to the crime. Mm -hmm. 
that's what that story is deeply about. That's what he does. And I truly believe that that is why I was able to keep kids wrapped for mm. an hour. Mm. Yes, I was entertaining, but at the core of it was deep moral material. Mm. Um, that's the bit that is very difficult in the modern age. It's difficult in the postmodern or post-postmodern or whatever we're up to. You know, with the postmodern idea that morals and values are kind of up for grabs and there's mm. no centre to it, it's difficult to make good art. Yeah, yeah. I because the totally old agree. mythologies and the old, you know, Shakespeare was writing at a time when the morals were very, very clear and very encoded. Yeah. And we may disagree with some of the forms and maybe the hierarchy of those moral values. Um, but, you know, trust and forgiveness and love and these hoary old chestnuts, they're still the things that will keep the fabric of society together. And yes, and they, and they seem to me, uh, from, from my perspective as a clinician, to, to be what creates harmony in the body. Uh, and um, yeah, ease and this sort of thing. So I think there is some sort of uh, fabric that we're um, appealing to, some wave that we're uh, wanting to know is coming and to and to get on to, and and that it's not just a figment of our imaginations, and that if we want to, if we want the wave to come now, then it's going to come now because that's the way I you know, this, that I'm solely creating the universe or whatever it is. Simon, um, uh, how can, what would you like to share in terms of uh, if people have liked what you've had to say about all this and, and the work that you do, what would you, what, um, what connections could you direct people towards? Oh, that's a good question. Um, If people would like to see my storytelling further, in fact, Orpheus in the Underworld is a quite well-filmed version of it. A live version of it is on YouTube. Yep. If you look for Simon Oates Storyteller, that hour-long show is there with all the greatest well hits in there. <laughs> um, and there's probably links on there to drop me a line if anyone felt to do so. Um, and you're, uh, you're doing work um, uh, helping organisations to find their narrative? Leaders, organisations. Um, I particularly work in the non-profit space and also around culture change. And the simplest way to find me for that kind of thing about, you know, how to share powerful stories to get people behind your cause and that sort of thing. Um, that's simonoates.com. It's the simplest way. Oats is like porridge, no e. Right. <laughs> and um, and certainly anyone who would like to get in touch can find a contact for me there. Great. Well, I'm I'm deeply grateful for the time uh, to spend. It's always uh, a bloody pleasure to yank with you, Mari. Yeah, I I we'd um, be doing it anyway if the microphones we, weren't here. So well, that's right, awesome. and and there'd probably be. Um, you know, as, as whatever time allows, we'll probably fill it. So, um, so if you've listened this far, thank you for, thanks for your time. I hope you've enjoyed it and, uh, and I hope you'll tune in 
next time. All the best till then. Well, that's it for this episode of the Bardic Body Podcast. I look forward to catching you next time. Till then, be well.